I don't know what your favorite genre of movies are, but I'll confess, I think my favorite genre of movies tend to be Westerns. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm in good company, but I just love those old Westerns that tend to have the standoff always, you know, in the dusty street, high noon, you know, always between the good guy and the bad guy. Seems like it's always Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef or John Wayne, Robert Duvall, Audie Murphy, Gary Cooper, there's some of those, those famous Western actors. Well, there's a word for the gunfight. The formal term for the gunfight was a duel. And actually in history, uh, duels were, there was a season in which they were legit. It was a legitimate way to settle some dispute. And that word duel in English comes from an old Latin word that meant combat between two persons. And it was usually a contest arranged between two persons with equally matched weapons and then mutually agreed upon rules. Now in, in history, a duel was based on a code of honor, always fought to restore one's honor by demonstrating a willingness to risk one's life. Now the most famous duel in American history, uh, perhaps took place in July of 1804 as years of just escalating personal conflict, political conflict, uh, sort of ended up in a standoff between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Now, you know your history. Um, Alexander Hamilton had been a former secretary of the treasury. Aaron Burr was serving as vice president under Thomas Jefferson. Hamilton absolutely detested Burr. He had actively campaigned against him during his failed bid to become governor of New York in, in 1804. And so Burr, he, he resolved to sort of restore his reputation by challenging Alexander Hamilton to a contest of honor, as duels were referred to. And so the, the two men, they squared off at a piece of property in New Jersey. And you know the story, Hamilton, Missed, Aaron Burr, his shot landed just above the abdomen, and the next day, Alexander Hamilton uh, was killed. And really, the nation was enraged by the killing of a man who had been so eminent as Alexander Hamilton. Now, I know that kind of thing is illegal, but I wonder if, well, <laughs> never mind. <clears throat> you wonder if there'd be so much back and forth and rhetoric in politics today if sometimes we just handled things the way they did back in the old day. Now, I'm not an advocate of that, but here's the thing. Duels, the most famous duel in history, it didn't take place on American soil, but really it happens in Exodus chapter 7. Uh, so go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bible. This is the contest, not so much between Moses and Pharaoh or even between Israel and Egypt, but ultimately, it's a duel or a contest between the forces of good versus the forces of evil, a contest between God and Satan. It was a battle that really pitted the God of Israel, the one true God, against all of the false gods of Egypt. And in many ways, it was just a, a preview of a, march, a much larger battle that would be fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ through his own death and resurrection. 
And so the passage that tells us um, most clearly what really the Exodus was all about and, and, and the plagues that really take place uh, in Egypt, 10 plagues that we begin reading about in chapter 7 all the way through really chapter 14 or so. But it was a demonstration of God's judgment against the gods of Egypt. And so much more than it being a contest between flesh and blood, it's a spiritual conflict. Uh, Numbers 33 says this, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying their dead, whom the Lord had struck down among them. And on their gods also, the Lord executed judgment. And so scripture's clear that the Exodus really is just one more instance of conflict in this invisible war that continually rages around us between light and darkness, heaven and hell. It was an epic contest between God and the gods of Egypt, which were really not gods, but were idols. And so we've been in this study of Exodus for several weeks now, and in the first six chapters, we've, we've really seen how God, in his providence, arranged all of the circumstances to bring his people up out of their bondage. They had been there for more than 400 years in Egypt. Uh, they had come under a heavy yoke of oppression. All the while, God was working to bring about their deliverance, though unbeknownst to them. God providentially arranged the circumstances that sent the little baby Moses down the Nile River in a basket. Uh, God's providence saw to it that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's own household. And even despite Moses' own choices as a grown man, God was carefully guiding his steps, eventually leading Moses to a place in the wilderness where God would make himself known to Moses at the burning bush. And so God gave Moses his promise of power and his presence with Moses. He sent Moses to Pharaoh with this ultimatum of sorts, let my people go. And even though Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, God would bring about the salvation of his people through 10 specific judgments or plagues. And these plagues would be a demonstration of his power and thereby prove that he is Lord, not just of Israel, but he's also the Lord of Egypt. And as such, he tolerates no rivals. Now, we'll get to the plagues later on, but, but I really want you to focus with me this morning from verse 8 through verse 13 in what sort of is a prelude and even a preview of those judgments which are to come in the form of those 10 plagues. So if you begin reading with me, verse number 8 of Exodus chapter 7 The Bible says, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, I'll stop reading there. 
But this is what I'm calling the most famous duel in history. The showdown between the one true God and the idols of Egypt. Now, Moses would have agreed with the words of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this present age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so ultimately, the nature of the conflict that's going to take place here in these chapters, it's a spiritual conflict. It's a conflict in kingdoms. And you really see this illustrated uh, in, in these verses that we've read this morning. And so this marks a turning place in the overall story of the Exodus. Uh, you might could say that verse 8 is the commencement of this final conflict between God and the false gods of Pharaoh and Egypt. Now this contest between God and Satan, this has been waged since before creation. But the contest between God and Pharaoh, well, that's something that's about to begin. Now, this passage of Scripture really provides us with four major points that you and I should understand about this cosmic contest. Uh, you might could think of them as four very important reminders for you and me as we find ourselves engaged in a spiritual conflict, which, by the way, do you know that the church has a mission and that mission involves spiritual conflict? Uh, which is why prayer is so very important for the people of God which is why that we have confidence in the power of the gospel, which is why we not lose track of what our ultimate mission is to declare the truth of God and the power of God's spirit and to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is in the world. Now, know this, if you endeavor to do that, you will come up against conflict in your life spiritually. And that should never take you by surprise because the nature of ministry itself involves spiritual conflict or even spiritual warfare. So notice with me, reminder number one, in this conflict, God's servants must simply speak his word. You know, that's what God calls Moses and Aaron to do here in this passage of scripture. If you go back and you look at the first seven verses of chapter seven, uh, you'll notice that God has said to, to Moses, you shall speak all that I command you. Back up in verse two, that's what God says. Even though that means that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, even though you're going to be facing sort of an uphill climb, Moses, what I want you to do is to simply speak everything that I command you to speak. Because ultimately, the battle is the Lord's. We sang about it just a few moments ago. I'm fighting a battle that he has already won. And so the battle belongs to God, and God's servant must simply speak the word. Now notice Moses and Aaron, they've got to speak the word even though they're given a difficult assignment. Speak the word even though Pharaoh is not going to listen. Verse four, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. But all of this is going to be by design because God says this is going to be the way that I'm going to multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. I'm going to lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, what will be the result of that? Well, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So God is going to act in power. Moses is going to declare the word. God is going to act in power. And the result of this, the Egyptians are going to come to know that I 
am the Lord. And so the servants of God, we've got to speak the word of God even though we've been given a difficult assignment. Now notice something else. Moses and Aaron speak the word even though they receive no popular acceptance. I want you to speak the word to Pharaoh, speak the word to his officials, but know this, you're going to be in the minority. Uh, The majority, they're going to be aligned with Pharaoh. You're going to feel outnumbered. It's going to seem like you're going to be overwhelmed. The odds are going to seem to be stacked against you. So speak my word despite this difficult assignment. Speak my word despite you receive no popular acceptance. Now let me ask you a question. Just because oftentimes the masses may not accept your witness, does that make you a failure? Absolutely not. Because again, their success would simply be in their witness to the truth sharing the message, relaying the message. Even though it's a difficult assignment, even though there's not going to be any popular acceptance, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak my word. And then notice how they speak the word even though they're of an unlikely age. You look at the circumstances here surrounding this this spiritual conflict. Verse seven says that Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. That is, when they declared God's word to Pharaoh, here you had this unlikely pair of men who many would say were well past their prime. Perhaps Pharaoh and his officials were much younger men, seemed like they had vitality and strength on their side. But you see, folks, listen, God, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he uses this unlikely pair who are on up in years because ultimately God is going to be the one who's going to get glory. So all of this considered means that age, location, and difficulty is no excuse when it comes to not sharing the truth, not speaking the word, not sharing the God. I can't use my age as an excuse. I can't use the location where I am as an excuse. I can't use the difficulty of circumstance as an excuse. And the fact of the matter is, how will the world ever hear the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel, if you and I refuse to be messengers of the gospel? There comes a point in time as the people of God, we've got to open up our mouths and we've got to use our words and we've got to verbally declare the truth of God's word in the power of God's spirit. And folks, it's the responsibility of each and every one of us, not just a few gifted individuals, But every man, woman, boy, and girl who's come to know Jesus Christ, God wants to use you to simply speak his word in the power of the Spirit. And that's that's what our task is in the world, isn't it? Sharing the message of salvation. In fact, Moses will say this later on uh, prophetically in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Would that all of God's people were prophets. So in a way, Moses is prophetically pointing to Pentecost here because that actually happens at Pentecost. After the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit who came to indwell the church, the result of the indwelling spirit now means that each and every single one of us as believers are called and empowered 
to speak the word. And that's what the prophet's task was, to, to, to simply declare the word, to speak the word. So in the nature of this spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in, what is our responsibility? It's to simply speak the word. And the enemy's going to try everything that he can to try to squelch out the word. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Uh, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the weapons then of our warfare, what are those weapons? We've got the weapon of prayer, and we've got the weapon of the word. And Ephesians chapter six tells us that we're to put on the whole armor of God so that we might stand in the evil day. And we take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so men and women, we are locked in a battle. The battle is spiritual, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And we stand and we speak just as Moses and Aaron faithfully stand and speak before Pharaoh and his officials. I think Martin Luther said it best in his, his hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One little word shall fail him, and that word is the gospel. The gospel is mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Uh, the Lord says in Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire? It's not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Revelation chapter 12, what is it that overcomes the enemy? But the, the, the saints overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You have a testimony in Jesus? You come to know Christ? You know the gospel? Uh, have you been set free from your sin and forgiven of your sin and given eternal life? You know God, then listen, speak the word as his faithful servant. So God's servants must share his word. And then notice a second reminder in this passage. Uh, God's spirit tolerates no rivals to his glory. God's spirit tolerates no rivals to his glory. Now you'll notice in this passage that the Lord instructs Moses and Aaron to give a sign and a demonstration of God's power to Pharaoh. And God's purpose ultimately is to reveal his power, not just to the Israelites, but even to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And so if you look at verse number eight, you'll notice that it begins with the Lord's instructions to Moses, uh, and he tells Moses and Aaron what he wants them to do at their meeting with Pharaoh. And the thing that he calls upon them to perform is, is really this full-on assault on, on Egypt and the sovereignty of Pharaoh. He says, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cast down your staff before Pharaoh that it might become a serpent. Now, why this sign of the staff becoming a serpent? Why is this the sign uh, chosen to perform before Pharaoh? Because listen, listen to this very carefully. 
in the transforming of that staff into a serpent. God is directly attacking Pharaoh and his people at the heart of their belief system. So this is not just a, this is not just a trick. This is not just a random thing here. No, this is a very specific sign that's going to illustrate something. When Pharaoh would demand the sign, Moses was to speak to Aaron, who would then perform that sign. And by the way, it was the same sign that God gave Moses back in chapter 4, if you remember. Where Moses, he's there at the burning bush. God tells him to throw down his rod. It becomes a serpent. Now, the Hebrew word that's used in chapter 4, translated serpent, it's the word nahash in Hebrew. Sounds like a hiss, nahash. And, And really, it's the most common Hebrew word for snake. Which, by the way, if you're scared of snakes, let me just, I should have put a disclaimer on my sermon this morning. I'm going to talk about them quite a bit. But that's not the word that's used here in chapter 7. Uh, it's, not, it's not Nahash, where God says, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. No, the word that's used here is the Hebrew word tannin. And it's a, a specific word that refers to this large, venomous snake. More than likely, it was a cobra. The Egyptian cobra would certainly be considered a tannin, a large, venomous viper. By the way, it's one of the most dangerous snakes in the world, highly venomous, can grow up to eight and a half feet long. In fact, when one of those things raises up, they say it can look a a grown man squarely in the eyes, which it never would have to bite me. I'd just die of a heart attack if that thing kind (laughs) of did that. You, you may remember from tradition that tradition says it was the Egyptian cobra that famously killed Cleopatra. Um, the use of this word here is it's not insignificant because the cobra was highly symbolic to the Egyptians as it represented Pharaoh and his authority. Ancient Egyptians, they were fascinated with snakes due to their fear of snakes. One Old Testament scholar said this, many of the Egyptians carried amulets to protect them from Apophis, which was the Egyptian serpent god who personified evil. Egyptian literature contains all kinds of incantations to afford protection from the snake bite. So it was this fear of of snakes that led Pharaoh to use the cobra as a symbol of his royal authority. In fact, It was believed that Pharaoh got his authority from uh, a a goddess whose image was represented uh, in the form of a cobra. Now, more than likely, I imagine at some point you've seen the crown, the headdress that the pharaohs of Egypt would wear. Uh, Example of what I'm talking about would be sort of the death mask of Tutankhamun or King Tut, the death mask of King Tut hut that was discovered by Howard Carter and his team of archaeologists way back in 1925. In fact, I've got an image of that. They'll throw it up on the screen. The death mask of King Tut. This would have been sort of what the Egyptian headdress of Pharaoh would have looked like. But if you pay close attention, you'll notice that it was crested with a cobra at the forehead. A hooded cobra. In fact, as the headdress was worn by Pharaoh himself, it was made to look like a hooded cobra. You know, where the cobra sort of, whenever it's, it's, it's trying to strike fear into its prey, 
It raises up. The whole idea is that Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the same way that a cobra strikes fear into its prey. So, so this serpent-crested diadem of Pharaoh, it symbolized all of the power and all of the sovereignty with which the Egyptians believed that the gods had endued Pharaoh. Now listen, now, now track here with me. It is not insignificant that the first thing that God tells Moses and Aaron to do is to take their staff, throw it down, it becomes a tannin or cobra that's crawling there in the dust where the serpent belongs. Not on the throne. The serpent doesn't belong on the throne. The serpent doesn't deserve worship but the serpent belongs in the dust. By the way, is that not what God said way back in Genesis chapter three when he cursed the serpent? And so you need to understand that really the the power behind the throne here, that Pharaoh had perhaps unbeknownst to him in the worship of idols, had aligned himself with the evil one himself. In fact, it was said that whenever the Pharaoh would come to power and that ceremonial headdress was placed upon his head, he would sort of say, sort of this oath of office, he would say something to the effect, O great one, O magician, O fiery serpent, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. And so keep all of this in mind here. So, so what you have happening here in Exodus chapter seven, this is a visual reminder of where the old serpent belongs, cursed and in the dust, not crested and crowned as something to be worshiped. And folks, it's a picture of the superior power of Almighty God over the evil one. And Pharaoh, he's the symbol and he's the representative of the satanic forces that are often arrayed against the people of God. And, and it's not lost on the Israelites here that the, the, whole, the key antagonist in this story, Pharaoh, he wears a serpent, cannon, on his forehead. And it wouldn't be lost on them. They'd know what God would have said about the great hero who would come to one day crush the serpent under his feet. Genesis 3.15. That's why Pharaoh is often described throughout the Old Testament prophets as, as a tannin. Ezekiel 29 verse 3. God tells Ezekiel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon. The word is tannin there. And so Pharaoh here is a picture of the enemy of God's people. By the way, you see this same imagery in Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, where John sees that vision of a great red dragon, a woman who was pregnant, who gave birth to a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But he sees the great red dragon that's ready and trying to devour the child. And it's a picture of, the woman is a picture of Israel, The male child, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, and the great red dragon. This is a picture of Satan who's waged a long war against God from time, eons and eons and eons in in the past. But folks, listen, one little word shall fail him. His power is not greater than the power of our God. 
And whenever we sense conflict in ministry, in our witness, in our families, the moment you determine in your life that you're going to surrender some area uh, to the Holy Spirit, you're gonna get serious in your prayer life, you're gonna get serious in your spiritual walk with God. It's not coincidental that it seems like all hell breaks out in your life. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But there's an invisible enemy who opposes you and who opposes the God who saved you. But the Spirit of God will tolerate no rivals. And that's what's happening here in this epic showdown of showdowns. God is telling Pharaoh and and the forces of darkness, my power is far superior to you. And so the servants of God have got to speak the word. God, he tolerates no rivals. And then notice number three, God's strength is greater than Satan's counterfeit. Now watch what happens in the story. Rather than repenting of his sin and placing his faith in the God of Israel, Pharaoh calls for his brain trust. He summons the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, They put on a magic show. Through a clever display of their own secret arts, according to what the text says, they too can make snakes. In fact, the the language that's used there, secret arts, this translates a word that means incantations. Comes from a root Hebrew word that means to set on fire. So evidently, there's some type of pyrotechnic display perhaps involved here what we would call smoke and mirrors. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? So so they've got their own little show that they're going to put on, their own little spells that they're going to cast. Some think that perhaps Pharaoh's priests here were magicians in the modern sense of the word, clever illusionists who performed parlor tricks by sleight of hand. There could be a demonic power behind their power here. That's highly possible as well. In fact, some uh, commentators I read this past week said that there are even still snake charmers in Egypt today who can take certain types of cobras, pinch the nerve in the upper part of their neck, and paralyze them. Now, there are commentators who've seen this. I've not seen this. I'm not sure I want to see it. But the fact of the matter is, there are illusionists out there who can mesmerize the masses. Now, whether it's sleight of hand, whether it's demonic power at work here, we don't know. It doesn't really matter because the main focus here is that last phrase of verse number 12. Look at it. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So it's a representation of a strength and power much greater than Egypt's magicians. Folks, you know that's what idolatry does. Idolatry often exerts a spiritual power and holds sway over the minds and hearts of people. And it's a way that Satan blinds the mind and binds the heart of a person. And the scripture says that those who worship idols really sacrifice to demons and not to God. Demons masquerade as the power behind those gods and figures that are made with human hands. And and here's what happens. Idol worship oftentimes provides the demonic with an entry point into the life of the person that's involved. 
Ancient Egypt was saturated with the worship of idols, which meant that Satan held people in his grip. But we don't need to get this impression that the enemy poses a real challenge to our God. Yes, it involves a conflict, but this conflict is really no real contest because his strength is far superior to that of the evil one. The miraculous thing happens here is Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. And that swallowing up, the language there, this is a sign of conquest and victory. It's a, it's a forecast of what God is going to do to Pharaoh and his armies later on as he swallows them up with the Red Sea. In fact, the same language is used in Exodus chapter 15 in the Song of Moses, the Song of Victory, well after the Exodus. The, sta the same staff that swallows up the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians is going to be the same staff that's going to be raised over the Red Sea to bring the Red Sea crashing down all around the armies of Egypt. And so it's a picture of the victory of our God. So here's the thing. The Lord is not challenging Pharaoh's authority. He's not even challenging Egypt's magic here, but he's triumphing over Pharaoh's authority. And he's showing what's going to happen in this conflict between Israel and Egypt. Now, listen, folks, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this. We'll come back to this next week. But idolatry, idolatry is not simply an issue. It is the issue of our time. All that we see that's taking place in our culture around us, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when someone makes something ultimate in their life and that thing is not God himself. A person, a place, a thing, an idea, if that is not the Lord and that's what becomes ultimate in your life, that becomes an idol. And Satan uses that to establish a beachhead in your life from which he launches an all-out assault on you spiritually. And an idol can be anything, money, Fame, fortune, physical pleasure. Uh, Sunday nights, Anita and I, we've gotten into watching these, uh, these biographies on A&E about all of my childhood heroes in the WWE. <laughs> now, I'll just go ahead and be honest. Uh, the one with Andre the Giant I thought was just great. But we were watching one of those biographies I can't remember the name of the wrestler, which one it was. I think it might have been Steve Austin. But the whole point of the biography was talking about all the success that he had had in the ring, all of the millions and millions of dollars that he had made, and he had just basically just went after it at the expense of his own family. And how tragic it was, sort of this biography ends with, with him all alone, living out on a ranch, he doesn't know his children, doesn't know his family, but he had made it to the top of success in the wrestling world. Now, it was interesting. The very next biography that came on the, the, the next week uh, was, was Lex Luger. Remember Lex Luger? And, man, he lived a wild life. He, too, made it to the top. Messed around with drugs and alcohol and had an illicit affair. 
But he came to a breaking point in his life. And, and listen, his biography was different because there came a point in time in Lex Luger's life when he hit rock bottom, he discovered that there was a rock at the bottom and that rock's name is Jesus Christ. And he came to know Jesus. And he was born again. And he's got a powerful testimony. And now, now he, is, he, uh, he, had, he had been paralyzed. He's in a wheelchair. He's, he's physically, he's a shell of what he once was. But there's a glow and there's a joy in his eyes that he never had when he was at the top of the wrestling world. There was a big difference in his story versus the one before him. You know what it was? He knew God. Whereas this other one had, had, had embraced a counterfeit, a substitute, an idol that had become ultimate in his life and in so doing it had robbed him of the very life that it had promised to offer. That's what idolatry always does. But you see, the thing is, our God is strong in power. He's mighty to save. And his strength is far superior than the enemy's counterfeit. The last thing that I'll leave you with is this, one final reminder from this passage. God's salvation is solely by means of his grace. God's salvation is only by his grace. Now think about this, verse 13, in response to the, the miraculous, even though God is throwing Pharaoh a lifeline, as it were, in this passage, performing the miraculous, showing him what will happen if he chooses to continue to harden his heart and persist in going his own way in unbelief. God's power is going to swallow up his power, just as Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of, of, of Pharaoh's magicians. And yet, even in the face of that message, Pharaoh doesn't change his heart. He's unyielding before this display of God's power. And, and, and it's a reminder that even the greatest miracle in the world cannot change a human heart. Someone says, if I could just see this sign, then I would believe. Listen, the evidence for the power of the gospel is all around you. Your problem is not lack of evidence, it's unbelief. It's failure to respond to the evidence that God has already pointed you to. Unless we forget, folks, when we witness and when we share the gospel and when we pray for our lost loved ones and our friends and our family, it's only the grace of God that saves a person. What a person who doesn't know God needs is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's why salvation is a work of God's grace, and let's never forget that. It's amazing to me, though, how the same son that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And that's something that we see illustrated in Pharaoh, isn't it? So listen, we're engaged in a spiritual conflict. And as the servants of God, our responsibility is to simply speak the word. Are you speaking the word in your home, over your marriage, over your children and your grandchildren, to the people you live beside, you work with? God's spirit will tolerate no rivals to his glory. Is there anything in your life that you perhaps are tempted to enshrine as an idol? Then listen, know this, 
What you'll do is if if you worship an idol, you'll give place to Satan in your own heart and life. And it will exert a spiritual power over you that will not give you life, but it will take life from you. But aren't you greater that God's strength, thankful that God's strength is far greater than the enemy? Amen. And God's salvation is by means of his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Men and women, I believe that God is at work in our generation. And perhaps the winds of revival are beginning to stir. The Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of his people. And I want to be sensitive to that because I I really believe that we're living in last days and, and spiritual conflict is going to increase in these last days. But that's why you and I need to be men and women of prayer and men and women of the word. Do you know Christ as your Savior this morning? Listen, if not, right now in an attitude of repentance and faith, confess your sin and believe that Christ died for you and rose again. And listen, aren't you grateful that 1 Corinthians 15 says, death has been swallowed up in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Aaron's staff swallowing up the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians. This is simply a a foreshadowing of how God's going to swallow up the enemy and destroy the power of the enemy through the death and the resurrection of his own son. Do you know him personally this morning? If not, then come to him in faith. Place your faith and your trust in him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sin." Is there something in your life that's dangerously close to being an idol? Listen, surrender that to the Lord Jesus because our God tolerates no rivals to his glory. He tolerates no rivals. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, thank you for the saving power. Your saving power. Lord, you are mighty to save. And the enemy is no match for the power of our God. And yes, Lord, we're in a spiritual battle. And that battle is raging in the lives of people that we love. God, there's some moms and some dads in this room, Lord, who are pouring out their soul in prayer over some wayward son or daughter. God, help them to understand the battle is the Lord's. And they fight that battle on their knees declaring the word, loving their child in Jesus' name or a friend or whomever it may be. And God, would you simply use us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.